ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. And when it became clear to me that he was talking about sharing money with the district attorney, I told him that under no uncertain terms that I would never make such an offer to the district attorney and he would never accept it. When you kill that guy, you know, it's like in the lottery. Like in the lottery. Grand, what did you decide? We deliberated with dignity. We deliberated with grace. We deliberated with compassion. And I'll tell you what, we walked out of that room, the proudest moment of my life. Tex McIver has punched a one-way ticket to state prison where he will spend the rest of his natural life. After deliberating for nearly four days, the jury in State of Georgia versus Claude Lee McIver finally came back. Less than two hours before, the jurors had told the judge they were deadlocked with no path toward a verdict. With a push from the judge, they somehow found the path, but they rendered a confusing verdict. Not confusing to them, perhaps, but baffling to me. We'll get to why that was so in a bit. 4.25 p.m., Monday, April 23rd, 2018. Tex McIver, wearing a dark pinstripe suit with a wine-colored tie, sits motionless as Juror 20 reads the verdict. His face betrays nothing. Juror 20, I would like you please to publish the verdict, which means read the verdict into the record. On count one, murder, we find the defendant not guilty. That was the only piece of good news MacGyver would get out of the jury. On count two, felony murder. We find the defendant guilty of felony murder. On count three, aggravated assault. We find the defendant guilty. On count four, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. We find the defendant guilty. On count five, influencing a witness. We find the defendant guilty. Georgia law governing homicide is a little quirky. What most people know as first-degree murder is malice murder in Georgia. Felony murder simply means that someone died during the commission of a felony. Trial lawyer Noah Pines said afterward that he wondered what McIver was thinking when he learned that he was not guilty of murder, but that he was guilty of murder. I can't imagine the thoughts going through Tex McIver's head when he heard count one, not guilty followed by count two, guilty. As you and I know, the sentence for felony murder is the same as murder. It carries a mandatory life sentence. 
McIver's defense team knew it too, of course. Don Samuel grimaced and shook his head as Juror 20 read the verdict. He had told me repeatedly during deliberations that his greatest fear was that the jury would convict on the felony murder charge as a compromise. Mr. McGyver, I'm remanding you to the custody of the sheriff. Um, we will get you back here uh, at a date that is mutually agreeable to the state and um, your side for purposes of sentencing in this matter. McIver stood. He held his hands behind his back so the deputy could cuff him. Defense attorney Amanda Clark Palmer rested her hand on McIver's arm, and then the newly convicted killer was escorted out. Across the room, the DA and his forces engaged in an endless round of joyful embraces. The chief assistant and mastermind of the McIver prosecution, Clint Rucker, hugged the assistant DAs. The assistant DAs hugged the DA's investigators. DA Paul Howard hugged Rucker, and everybody hugged the prosecution witnesses. The state was clearly euphoric. In the McIver camp, Ann Schwal rushed out of the courtroom in tears. Annie Anderson also broke down. In the hallway, she was on her phone, but was sobbing so hard she could barely speak. I'm Bill Rankin of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I hereby remand you to the season finale of Breakdown. Welcome back. And what an ending. The prosecution had a lot to celebrate. All three people who were in the car when Diane McIver was shot had said the shooting was an accident, and the DA pulled a murder conviction out of that. As the prosecution team went through its victory hugs, I found Jay Grover. He was a close friend of Diane's, a vice president at the Corey Companies, and a key state witness. After he testified for the state, he was in the gallery every day. Yeah, justice has been served. I mean, that's what it, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. I mean, we were here for Diane. The state was here for Diane. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's not that it's a, a victory. It's, it's, it's all about justice. Not surprisingly, the defense team had little to say. They were clearly distraught and upset. I caught Bruce Harvey as he walked out of the courthouse. His words were biting and to the point. It just shows the power of emotion over reason. The DA's team was suitably decorous in the post-trial press conference. Paul Howard opened. We would like to say to Diane, we hope that you are watching, and we hope that you felt that we stood for you, and we stood for the things that you represented. I want to congratulate this trial team. Um, I, I've been district attorney here uh, since 1996, and we've had many, many what would be termed as high-profile cases. Uh, but Clint, I cannot remember a case uh, that we have spent so much time trying to put the case together, uh, so many weekends and so many nights until 2 o'clock in the morning. Howard praised the medical staff at Emory University Hospital. Nearly 10 of them took the stand. First of all, what they described to us was someone who was not grieving over the death of his wife. Uh, then, when they started to reveal to us the different versions of the facts, uh, certainly we started asking ourselves, well, why is it that someone who was telling the truth would need to come up with several different versions of what happened? Billy Corey, the 86-year-old founder of the Corey Companies, joined Howard and Rucker for the press conference. And the state of Georgia should be proud of our DA staff 
our judge, and our jury. And may Diane rest in peace. They stood up for Diane today. Later, Corey was asked, when did you begin to suspect Tex was a murderer? It took me a, maybe a day or two for it to kind of sink in. Because we were all Diane's family. We're Diane's family. And then we realized it was not an accident. We didn't think it was an accident. And the jury confirmed that today. The man of the hour, of course, was lead prosecutor Clint Rucker. He thanked the jury and his team. And he singled out one witness. She was actually in the room during the press conference, right behind the reporters. Danny Joe Carter, Rucker said, was his most valuable player. It was tremendously important. The fact that her recollections of the events of that night remained consistent throughout. The fact that she was willing to cooperate with us and meet with us on occasions where she actually walked us through the events of that night. It kind of set a foundation for us in terms of how we were able to piece together uh, what actually happened, uh, not only that night, but the weekend prior, and in fact, years prior, because what Danny Joe Carter did was give us some foundational information regarding the relationship. And so um, she was um, perhaps the MVP. And Rucker was reminded of his brilliant closing argument in the poem he led off with. You remember? Who will stand for the little girl? Well, I think in a resounding voice, the jurors have said, we will. We will. Then Howard says something that must have brought smiles to Tex haters everywhere. One, one of the other things that, um, that, that, one of the other reasons that I'm so proud of this team, because if many, many of you realize under Georgia's Slayer Act, because of the jury's verdict today, That's right. uh, Tex McIver will not have access to Diane's estate. Uh, we talked about that as a motive. Uh, her $7 million estate, uh, if he had been convicted of the involuntary manslaughter, he still would have had access to that estate. He will not get a chance now to get that money because of his conviction uh, for the offense of felony a murder. So, guilty of four out of five charges. I wanted to talk to you about how he got to that point. I know what I've said before on Breakdown, that the closing argument is a time to shore up your support on the jury, not a time to win converts. In this case, though, some of the most gifted lawyers in the state delivered the closings. And Clint Rucker's closing may have sealed the case for the state. It was brilliant. Some unusual tactics, which I'll talk about shortly. Just by the way, we had not two closing arguments, but four. Here's the cast of closing characters. Kara Convery, assistant DA, cool and skillful. Convery is so quietly persuasive that you may not see the thrust for the jugular coming. We know the injuries she sustained are just a few centimeters below her heart. This is no accident. Clint Rucker, chief assistant DA, the preacher. Nothing subtle here. His extraordinary voice can go wherever he sends it, up the scale or down, and carry you right along with him. Killing Diane McGowan solves all his problems. He is much better off with her dead than he is with her alive. Don Samuel, defense attorney. Logical, intense, sarcastic. Let's just look at the thousand things wrong with the state's case. Did I say a thousand? I meant 10,000. If you're going to murder someone, 
I just, please just use some common sense. If you're going to murder someone, why do you shoot her in front of her best friend? Why would you do that? Bruce Harvey, defense attorney, the braided brain, the tattooed teller of truth, and a classic closer. He doesn't tell a story. He tells you the way things are. And when you do that, and you cut away all the maybes, and you cut away all the innuendos, and you cut away all the undelivered promises, your verdict should be not guilty as to all counts in this indictment. Clint Rucker offered the most memorable and the most electrifying closing. That is, if you're going on pure style and emotional appeal. I mean, hey, this man can orate. He can go right down to a whisper. Or he can raise his voice while slapping his hands to make his point. And he so often repeats himself to make his point. To make his point. I mean, Clint. I go to trial. Rucker is mesmerizing. He's mesmerizing. But as you know, parts of the state's case have troubled me since the beginning. Smoke everywhere, suspicion, bad behavior. But did the state offer actual proof, hard evidence, that Tex MacGyver intended to kill his wife, Diane? The prosecution did come up with incontrovertible evidence that Tex is not a likable guy. He's guilty of that, no question. Convery started for the state and took a bit less than 30 minutes. She was followed first by Samuel. He took just over an hour. Bruce Harvey finished for the defense. And Rucker had the last word, taking all of the state's remaining one hour and 35 minutes. And he used no notes. No notes. I saw Kara Convery in the hallway just before she gave her closing. She was pacing in a zone had her earbuds in, listening to her trial playlist. We said hello, but I quickly let her have her space. You'll remember her as the prosecutor in season six of Breakdown, a jury of his peers. Among other things, Convery focused on the trigger. Could Tex have pulled the trigger of the 38 Smith & Wesson by accident if it wasn't cocked? It was not pulled back. And that is important. That is so important in this case because we know if the gun was not in full cock as described by the defendant, then it is 12 and a quarter pounds to squeeze. That gun is in evidence. And so if you want to feel that, you should ask the judge. And of course, they did. Convery also said the path of the bullet showed Tex absolutely aimed the revolver and fired at Diane's back. We know that the defendant told the Atlanta Police Department that he was handling the gun and it just went off. But from the testimony and from the facts in this case, we know that that is not true. That's not what this case is. You saw yesterday and you heard testimony about where the muzzle of the gun is, where the gun is actually pointed when it fires. We know that it's at least six inches from the seat. And we know that it is right to left and slightly upward. We know that it hits Diane MacGyver right in the middle of her back, just about an inch left of her midline, her spine. And if it had not hit a vertebrae on the way through her body, it would have possibly traveled through her heart. We know the injuries she sustained are just a few centimeters below her heart. This is no accident. If you've listened to previous seasons of Breakdown, you know I've turned to Don Samuel frequently to explain the complexities of criminal case law. 
Yes, he's been Breakdown's resident legal expert, and for that, I've been so grateful. I was also eager to see him in action in this case. He didn't disappoint. I want to talk first about the state's theory, which even to this day, we don't fully understand what the state's theory is about this. Samuel went over the many doubts jurors should have about the case. They speculate maybe there was a second will, maybe something about the property, maybe she was going to foreclose on him. There's zero evidence of any of those things happening. There's zero evidence she was going to foreclose on the $350,000 or that there was a second will. There's no evidence to support that. Was he jealous? Was there another woman? We've certainly heard about that. Samuel then began ticking off one doubt after another jurors should have. Among them? They were in love. You can poo-poo that. You can say that's ridiculous. You can say whatever you want to say, but there is no doubt about it. They were like little teenagers in love, young teenagers in love. Nobody ever saw them fight. Nobody ever saw them arguing. Nobody ever heard her say, I'm going to foreclose if you don't pay me my, pay me my money. Nobody ever heard her say anything about my second will is going to affect, you know, next week. There was nothing like that. How can you ignore that evidence? How can you ignore the fact that they clearly were in love? Why, why would you do that? Come up with one reason that says, I know what, what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till Danny Joe Carter is, what, eight inches away from me and eight inches away from her best friend. That's when I'm going to commit the crime. In sum, Samuel argued, you could drive a Ford Expedition through the holes in the state's case. We're not talking about reasonable doubts here. We're talking about just astonishing improbabilities. I mean, it is just outstanding what, how unlikely it is, given all of these factors. It is outstandingly improbable that this was an intentional, methodical, calculated, well-planned out murder. And Samuel reminded jurors of testimony from an important witness. She said Danny Joe told her that it was Diane who had startled Tex, waking him up before he fired the shot. You know who else said he fell asleep? Diane. You remember the testimony? The testimony is that Diane said, Tex, wake up! If you don't wake up, you're not going to go to sleep tonight at the conduct. Shot. Samuel says the state's case is based on speculation and red herrings. As for red herrings, Samuel gave the jury a short history lesson. In the 19th century, hunters used to overcook herrings until they turned red and got unbelievably smelly. The hunters used those red herrings to train their dogs. They would drag the fish across the trails where the foxes went. The dogs, which can smell anything, would come across the red herring smell and think, that disgusting but very interesting smell is not the fox, but it is very interesting. Very. Was there something about a fox? That's where the expression red herring came from. It's a distraction. It's something designed to throw you off the trail. Samuel also said the state had achieved one of its primary goals. We are going to vilify Tex McGuire. We are going to muddy him up. We are going to make this jury not like him. That's their mission. That's what we've been doing for six and a half, seven weeks. He acted irrationally after his wife died. He was worried about money. Greedy? Go ahead, call him greedy. 
He lacks social skills. Lord knows he lacks social skills. He's a flawed person. Okay? He's not perfect. He's not even close to being perfect. He's not even within a, 10 miles of being perfect. They've proved that. They did a very good job. Because of all those things, by golly, you should feel comfortable finding him guilty of murder. Samuel then told the jury about its duty, which in this case, of course, was to find Tex MacIver not guilty. Bruce Harvey then addressed the jury. Some of what he said was repetitive, but maybe that was by design. At first, Harvey tipped his hat to his co-counsel while also needling the judge. Harvey isn't shy about needling judges. I don't know how I improve on that. I, I really don't. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, here's some cards. Write me some questions. I'll answer your question. And we'll be done. Yeah, yeah, you're there. <laughs> Here they are. You only knew how ironic that was. <laughs> that, of course, was Harvey referring to Judge McBurney's practice of allowing jurors to ask questions of witnesses by passing note cards to the deputy after a witness's testimony. Harvey doesn't like those questions at all. He says they just give the state a chance to fill a hole that it should have filled already. By the way, the jury asked almost 300 questions during the lengthy trial. That is a lot of holes. Harvey tells the jury. But we're here because Mr. MacGyver says, I am not guilty. This is a trial in which we have an accident in search of a motive. Harvey spent a good bit of time talking about the path of the bullet, the positioning of Texas' hands when he fired the shot, and the amount of pressure it would have taken to pull the trigger and he made sure to highlight that wild moment with the state's firearms expert. Remember the expert? Remember the expert from the crime lab? Remember him demonstrating um, the weapon and pulling the trigger when he testified right here? Because you notice the trigger. Oops. He's demonstrating it for you on the witness stand. He accidentally pulls the trigger. He says, oops, a demonstration for you from the state's expert of how unintentional discharge may occur when you're testifying for the state on the witness stand. Harvey, like Samuel before him, reminded the jury of what all three occupants of the SUV said about the fatal shot. Tex, Diane, and Danny Joe said it was an accident. I like this bit in which Harvey invites the jury to be on his side. He talks about what we do and what we don't do. Did the state prove to you that it was not an accident? Here's, here's what they're saying to you. Pay no attention to the reasonable doubts that you heard from Mr. Samuel. Pay no attention to those doubts. Rely on speculation. And I want to tell you that speculation is different than circumstantial evidence. We do not convict people on the clouds and fogs 
of speculation, but on the bedrock of fact. That's what we do. And then he lowers the boom. A second will, please. There was an advertisement taken out in the legal organ of Fulton County. Any lawyer, anybody that knows anything about a second will, come tell us. Come tell us you prepared it. Come tell us you saw it. Come tell us I've got it. Maybe there is another will. That's pure speculation. Maybe she would foreclose on the loan. Well, there's not a shred of evidence that she did or was going to. In fact, it was rolled over. Maybe they argued in private. Maybe. But there's no evidence of that either. Maybe he had another woman in his life, and we heard about all the speculation. But that's maybe again. That's speculation. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Pay no attention to the proof of accident. Rely on our red herrings to reach your decision. That's what the state's case has been in this case. Nothing more than the maybes. Again, this trial is an accident in search of a motive, and it's a tale of innuendos and undelivered promises. We'll be right back. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. By the way, throughout the trial, there were a lot of empty seats in the large courtroom. Members of the Corey companies, including Billy Corey himself, became mainstays. Attorneys with other business at the courthouse would also stop by to observe. But for closing arguments, the courtroom was packed. This was a courthouse event. And now it was time for the main event. Clint. I go to trial. Rucker time. When Judge McBurney told him it was time to begin, Rucker took his time. He looked through his papers. He paused. He collected himself. Then he recited his version of the Who Will Cry poem from the movie Antoine Fisher. Who will stand for the little girl? who was murdered and all alone. His repeated references to 63-year-old Diane McIver as a little girl were off-putting to many people. I'm guessing Rucker applied for a poetic license, probably from out of state, and figured he was good to go. He then walked up close to the jury box to recite the poem. When he was finished, he said, I have been waiting a long time to talk to you all about the facts and the circumstances of this case. They are clear, they are compelling, they are overwhelming, and they establish the guilt of this defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. And I gotta tell you, breakdown listeners, he pulled out the muddy water. He really did. This is just an old mason jar. It's got some old little creek water in it and some sand. The state's case it's like the water in this jar. It's clear. You can see through it, to the facts and the evidence, to get it to truth. But for the last couple of hours, I suspect some of y'all have been shaken up a little bit by what the defense attorney's been saying. So let me tell you what we're gonna do. 
I'm gonna shake up this jar, okay? I'm gonna shake up this jar, I'm gonna shake it up real good. Shake it up the way maybe some of you all have been shook up by some of the things that the defense attorneys have been saying. And I'm gonna put it right here. I'm gonna make you a promise. By the time I get through with my argument and take my seat, this jar is gonna be clear, just like it was when we started out. And it's gonna be clear, just like each and every one of your minds will be clear about the guilt of this defendant. Trial lawyers often have a greatest hits of closing arguments, rhetorical devices they use and then reuse in later trials. They do it because the devices are effective and because they can be confident that the next jury will not have heard this bit before. So it is with Rucker and his sandy water. I remember the first death penalty trial I covered. The defense attorney rose to make his closing argument. He started talking about some story or analogy about a bird that was caged. I can't remember it exactly. But I do remember the assistant DA immediately leaning over to the DA and whispering, here comes the bird story. In his 95-minute summation, Rucker wove a convincing tapestry of greed, betrayal, and murder. His strong, resonant voice commanded attention. He made the most of what had been proven and what could be inferred. His passion and intensity and sincerity were magnetic. His delivery was so good that it concealed as much as it revealed. What did it conceal? That Rucker had vacuumed up rumors, lies, suspicions, and speculation, and he turned them all into a compelling narrative of Tex MacGyver's guilt. On occasion, I thought, he offered statements as fact and as evidence that either weren't true or had not been proved, but he did it with skill and assurance. This first example concerned the relationship of Tex and Diane McIver. His solution was to rely on the sugar mama. The problem was she wasn't that kind of woman. And at what point would she have used her sharp time and said, you know what, you want to do something. Because man, I'm not, I'm not going to keep on giving you this money. And you're not paying me back. That's not why I got with you. And Rucker was just getting warmed up. He then launches into a bacon and eggs metaphor, talking about Diane bringing her eggs to the table and Tex bringing his bacon to the table. See, you were supposed to bring your bacon and put it on the plate, and I was going to put my eggs and put it on the plate, and then together we can have a meal that we can share. But if all we got on the plate is my eggs, and now I got to pay for the bacon too, I don't really need you. When he killed Diane McGough, you know, it's like in the lottery. The, the problem with that is that there's no evidence that such a conversation ever took place. Maybe it did. Maybe Diane McIver was angry about having to buy her own bacon. But Rucker had just created a vivid scene of domestic drama that could have occurred. And then again, maybe it didn't. Then he turns to an email exchange Diane and Tex had just months before the shooting. It's Clint Rucker at his finest. Remember this email? Y'all look at this. This is June of 2016. This is a couple of months before the murder. This is what the defendant says to his wife. I am seriously trying to reduce my monthly expenses. Why? Because his monthly expenses in the ranch alone were 20 to 25 thousand dollars a month. This is 2016. His partnership has been cut. He's only making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, knowing that the next year it's going to be even less. 
And then after that, he ain't gonna make anything. What's he gonna do? What does he say? I plan on hitting the lotto sometime this week. Rucker tells the jury, don't forget how Diane responded to this. This is what she says with her sharp tongue. Make sure you read Javier's job description. He was a ranch hand. He made a couple thousand dollars a month feeding the cows, cutting the grass. Read his job description. <laughs> because that is your next life chapter. That's what she said to her husband. When he says to her, hey, I'm trying to reduce my monthly expenses, pretty much what he's saying is, hey, I need your help. Save you lots of moolah. You will be standing there with your hand out when I get in the door every Friday. Tex responded to this exchange by saying, guess it's back to being a gigolo. The defense took this as playful banter. Rucker called it proof of motive. Next example, the infamous second will, the legal document that the state never was able to produce. Was there a new will? Rucker talks about the testimony by Rachel Stiles. Listen to what happens to Rucker's voice when he gets to the will. It's amazing. She loves the defendant to this day. She came in here, this is what she said. Diane asked me to make some copies of the document. She said she asked me because she trusts me. The lady's been knowing Diane for 25 years. She says, I made the copies. I walked back in the office. I gave them to him. She said, thanks. This was a copy of my new will. Let's hear that again. This was a copy of my new will. Yes, Rachel Stiles said she heard Diane say there was a new will, but she didn't actually read the document. Rucker's main argument was that Tex killed Diane because he didn't want to lose his Putnam County ranch and wanted her money. She had lent him $350,000, getting Tex to sign a promissory note to pay it back. After they were married, Tex signed over half the farm to Diane. Then, after the big loan, she arranged it so she could foreclose on the loan at any time, for any reason. But there was no evidence presented that suggested Diane planned to do such a thing. Now Rucker tells how MacIver plotted the murder. He reminds the jury that Tex tried and failed to get a friend at the ranch to take Danny Joe home so she wouldn't witness what was about to happen. But you see, if you took Danny Joe home, he'd be alone in the ranch with Diane MacIver. They keep talking about why did he kill her at the ranch? Why did he kill her on I-20? Maybe that was the original plan. She would have an accident at the ranch. And so he says, well, you know what? I'm going to have to go to make a plan B. I know I'm getting to be a broken record, but every bit of this was surmise on Rucker's part. He may have been dead on target, but that's the thing about speculation and supposition. It might be absolutely accurate, and it might be totally wrong. But he's clearly arguing things that he didn't prove at trial. Rucker ultimately goes to the moment of the shooting. What was the gun doing here on the right side? with his hand around the grip and his finger inside of the trigger guard. Why? Why? Even in his own statement, he says, the danger was gone. The danger was gone. So why didn't you just get a gun back? Why didn't you sit it on the seat next to you? Why didn't you put it on the floor in between your feet? Your darling, your soulmate, 
The one that you love more than anything in this world is sitting just inches in front of you. Why would you put her in that kind of danger? If you love her so much and you are so familiar with guns, and it's almost a perfect shot, like a marksman shot. Rucker then recalled the testimony of ER doc Suzanne Hardy. Dane tried to stand up for herself in her last waking moments. Dr. Suzanne Hardy asked her a question. Do you want to see your husband? I'm about to put this tube down your mouth. You're not going to be able to speak. Diane knew she was going. She said to her over and over again, am I dying? Am I dying? We've talked to the folks. They'll tell you, you know, especially old people, they know you know. People know when they're dying? That's what a suddenly metaphysical Rucker declares. Nearing the climax of his closing, Rucker then displayed on the projector screen a photo of Diane on the gurney at the medical examiner's office. It elicited some gasps throughout the courtroom. I just wanted you to see the aftermath of the defendant's actions. She's been reduced now to a simple number, except in the minds of the people who loved her. He was referring to Diane's autopsy number. Then Rucker ended with the poem he began his arguments with. Who will stand for Diane McGavin? A great woman she tried to be. Ladies and gentlemen, will you stand? Will you stand for Diane McGavin? As she cries out, who will stand for me? Um, Stand up for Diane. No, stand up for Diane. Surprisingly, before he finished, Rucker did not tell the jury to take a look at his sandy water glass. Maybe he'd been in the zone for so long that he just forgot about it. Or maybe the jar was still a little bit murky. It wasn't crystal clear as it was supposed to be by the time he finished. We'll be right back. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. A lot of people, including the Atlanta police, thought MacGyver was guilty not of murder but of involuntary manslaughter. And Judge McBurney, of his own accord, gave the jury that option on its verdict form. Many of us covering the trial thought the jury would take that option. Interestingly, though, both the prosecution and the defense, for different reasons, urged the jury not to convict on involuntary manslaughter. Trial lawyer Noah Pine says that's where this case should have landed. From the beginning, I thought that this was an involuntary case based on reckless conduct. Even if Tex accidentally pulled the trigger, even if he just woke up and was jolted and pulled the trigger without knowing it, it's the fact that he was in the back of a car after having consumed alcohol and fell asleep with a gun on his lap and a finger on his trigger 
that was a reckless act that set up the death of Diane. But the defense strategy of asking the jury not even to consider this carried a huge risk. While I thought the defense did a masterful job in closing argument, one of the things that concerned me was that they asked the jury not to consider the lesser-included offense of involuntary manslaughter based on reckless conduct. So this was really an all-or-nothing. It's either murder and he's guilty, or an accident and he's not guilty. There's always a danger when you ask a jury for an all-or-nothing. The jury deliberated for day after day. Along the way, jurors were asking questions that sounded as if they favored the defense. They had told Judge McBurney that they wanted to recess on Friday at 4 p.m. Then shortly before 4, they notified the judge that they were making progress and wanted to continue deliberating. This made us all think that the verdict was close at hand. And then, five minutes later, the jury sent out word it wanted to go home for the weekend. We did come back on Monday, and the jurors' questions indicated they were struggling with the definition of intent. This, of course, was the very heart of the case, and the jurors must have been chipping at it for days. They asked McBurney, for an assault to occur, does there need to be an intent to cause violent injury? McBurney sent a note back saying, yes, intent is necessary to convict on an aggravated assault charge. Just before lunch on Monday, the jurors sent out the discouraging word. McBurney read it to the court. We don't see a path to overcome our differences on the defendant's intent related to charges one, two, three, and five. This meant a mistrial was in the offing. And I had the thought that Tex might soon walk out of the courthouse free until the state decided whether to retry him. And then I thought, Oh my God, we're going to have to do this all over again. But McBurney had different ideas. He decided to detonate the dynamite charge. This is formerly known as an Allen charge. It's an instruction to the jury designed to blow up the logjam in the jury room, hence dynamite charge, and get jurors moving toward a verdict. This is the crux of it, as told to the jurors by McBurney. I like how the charge tells the jurors they are not here to arrive at a disagreement. This case, as you know from personal experience, has been exhaustively and carefully tried by both sides and has been submitted to you for a decision and verdict, if possible, and not for disagreement. Any verdict as to any count must, of course, be unanimous. While this verdict must be the conclusion of each juror, and not a mere acquiescence to the other jurors in order to reach an agreement, it is nevertheless necessary for all of you to examine the issues and questions with candor and fairness and with a proper regard for and deference to the opinions of others. Summing up, McBurney said, In a moment, you will return to the jury room for as much time as you need to examine your differences in a spirit of fairness and candor and to try again to arrive at a verdict, keeping in mind the charge that I have previously given you concerning the burden of proof, the elements of the crimes charged, and other matters. Thank you. All rise for the jurors. The jurors rose too, but you could tell not all of them liked this dynamite charge. Some seemed surprised. Some had sour looks. 
but some seem to find new resolve as if to say, okay, let's get back in there and get her done. After the jury returned to deliberate, I passed Bruce Harvey in the hall. He said, I hate the Allen charge. Actually, there was another word in that sentence, but it was special legal jargon, so I won't share it here. (laughs) In fact, I can't share it here. Suffice to say, he had reason to hate the charge. After the verdict, my colleague, Madeline McGee, was tasked with catching the jurors as they made their way out of the courthouse. I asked Maddie how it went. I was waiting for jurors to come out of the jury room after the verdict was read, and um, I asked them for comment. Most of them just shook their head or averted their eyes or um, said no comment, and then as they were walking away, one of the jurors, I believe it was juror 61, shouted back, he's guilty, he's going to jail. And by the time juror 61 had left the building, she was ready to say much, much more. Juror 68, who gave his name as Aubrey Gray, was ready to talk as well. He said the issue of how and why the gun fired was central to his thinking. This audio comes courtesy of our friends at WSB-TV. There was definitely a point where we did not think we were going to get to uh, either guilt or innocence. Um, But luckily for us, the judge sent us back told us to rethink what we were doing, and we got to a point where the, you know, all of the jurors were able to compromise, specifically look at the evidence, take away any emotion that we had, and that's how we came up with our, with our guilty verdict on four of the five counts. There's a, quite a few gun experts, experts that were on the jury, and you know, that was one of our contentions the entire time. Why was the, his hand, particularly his finger, on the trigger. And one of the key things for us is we had to look back at his statements uh, to police uh, when he said the gun just went off. And we finally decided, guys, the gun just, a gun just doesn't go off. Again, it was not an accident. Um, his hand was on the trigger. Guns just don't go off, um, which is how we reached our verdict. Gray said that on Thursday, the vote was five for malice murder, Gray was among them, and seven for involuntary manslaughter. Speaking later with my colleague Bill Torpy, Gray made this indisputable observation. A lot of us thought he was not a good person, not a good guy. He was not someone you'd invite over for dinner. He also said, quote, The gun just did not go off. Who falls asleep with his finger on the trigger, especially being gun conscious like he was, unquote. And Gray shed further light on the mind of the jury. Quote, I don't think the plan was to kill her at that moment. I think he meant to do it in Putnam County. He had good relations with the sheriff. It'd be easier to do it there. But at some point during that ride, he saw the opportunity to do it." Unquote. Juror 61, who identified herself as Lakeisha Boyd, made the flat assertion that, quote, at no given time did we think it was an accident, unquote. Boyd said the state just didn't meet its burden of proof on the malice murder charge. Because there was a lot of things that the state did not present to us to where as though we had to read in between the lines and fill in what they did not give. And trust me and believe me, I-61 chewed the hell out of the state because they did not give us any, really any evidence to go by to, to present malice or murder. And that's, that's what they wanted and we couldn't give them what they want because they did not give it to us. Aubrey Gray said he was in both camps for a time. Like Boyd, he also found the evidence less than satisfying. In future cases where this type of incident, you know, occurs, 
I wish that all sides from law enforcement to the lawyers do their due diligence to, to really get to the truth and not necessarily leave it up to the 12 of us to decipher some of the things we were left with to decipher. So the jury wanted more evidence? Surely if the prosecution had it, it would have presented it. And this is why I said at the beginning of this episode, the jury reached a confusing verdict. Both the first count, malice murder, and the third count, aggravated assault, are crimes of intent. So why did the jury decide guilty on one and not guilty on the other? It's like saying, MacIver did mean to shoot his wife, but he didn't mean to kill her. Confused? Here's trial lawyer Ashley Merchant. This verdict is very confusing. See? And the reason it's very confusing is that the jury, in order to find him not guilty on count one, malice murder, they had to specifically find that he did not intend to kill Diane. But then by finding him guilty on count two on the felony murder, they also had to find that he was guilty of intending to shoot her and harm her. So they had to have found that he actually intended to shoot her and intended to cause bodily harm. And that's what was required for felony murder. But then, because they were not guilty on the count on the first count, they had to have found that he didn't mean to kill her. So basically what they're saying is, we think he meant to shoot her. We think he meant to cause bodily harm. She happened to die in the process, but we don't think that death was intentional. Merchant thinks that the jury did not have a firm grip on the law in more than one way. You know, from a defense standpoint, this verdict is very disappointing because it seems as though the jury was trying to cut Tex MacGyver a break by finding him not guilty on the malice murder. But what they did by finding him guilty on the felony murder was subject him to the exact same range of punishment that he would get under count one. So what the jury doesn't know, because they're not allowed to be told about the range of punishments, is that finding him guilty of malice murder, count one, and finding him guilty of felony murder, count two, are the exact same things. Both carry the same sentence, mandatory life in prison. MacGyver will be sentenced May 23rd. And now it's time for my closing argument. I don't have a jar of muddy water, and if I did, the water would not be crystal clear. I thought this was a close, close case. From the outset, I thought the way Tex killed Diane in front of her best friend, who initially told police she was certain it was an accident, could very well have been an accident. It was reckless for sure, if Tex was telling the truth. But the prosecution is right. Tex told too many different stories after the fact. And he did so many breathtakingly incriminating things after Diane's death, he was indeed his worst enemy. Yes, he may now well be serving the rest of his life in prison because he's an idiot. But I also asked myself this. If Tex was so clueless after the killing, what was he like before the killing? Was he capable of cooking up such an irrational murder plot and then carrying it out on one of the busiest streets of Atlanta? When it comes to Tex MacIver, I guess anything is possible. Finally, I want to say that the people who listen to Breakdown, including and especially you, are the best. This season has been a very long and often difficult ride. It was interrupted and then resumed four months later, and you stayed with us. Thanks so very much for listening. We'll give Judge McBurney the last word, because the judge always gets the last word. Well, um, I thank the jurors for their time. Uh, I think it's equally important to thank 
the attorneys um, and investigators for both sides for working hard and conscientiously on this case as well. It was complicated, it was drawn out, uh, it was important. Um, a, uh, a life was lost and a life is at stake as a result of the charges. And I appreciate everyone's professionalism uh, and dedication to um, bringing this matter forward. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design and original music by Chris Basta at Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Special thanks to Burt Roten Jr., who lit the fire that became Breakdown, editor-in-chief and podcaster Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, Madeline McGee, Bill Torpy, and all the great folks at the AJC. Thanks as well to Chris Basta, Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2. Buddy Hall, and Josh Gaynor. And to a boss and his staff at a Breek Coffee Room in downtown Atlanta for keeping us caffeinated during long afternoons of writing. And to our very good friends, Veronica Waters at WSB Radio and Mike Bachenik at WSB TV. And finally, thanks to Sarah Newby Hallix, whose voice you're hearing right now. Hello, this is a collect call from Dex McIver, an inmate at Fulton County Jail. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.